Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Old family photographs are treasured heirlooms. We look back at them and see similarities in our faces, our children's faces. We wonder how a distant relative lived his or her life. But there are many African Americans who don't have photos of their relatives, relatives who were enslaved. Tamara Lanier believes she has seen photographs of her great-great-great-grandfather, Renty, and his daughter, Delia. But their images are held by Harvard University's Peabody Museum. Tamara says they belong to her. In 2019, she sued Harvard for wrongful seizure, possession, and expropriation of the old photographs taken in 1850, during a time when there were nearly 4 million enslaved people living in this country. Today, where we live, we hear how Lanier traced her family roots to Renty and Delia, and why she thinks Harvard should give those photographs to her family. You can join our conversation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're also going to hear how Tamara's story exposes the legacy many universities have to slavery. I want to welcome Tamara Lanier again to our studio. Uh, She lives in Norwich, Connecticut. Uh, Tamara, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to start with uh, how uh, you connected your family history to these two people who were enslaved in 1850 in South Carolina. Uh, I understand that you first heard about them through your late mother. What did she tell you growing up? Well, my mother was a retired teacher, and um, throughout my childhood and also the childhood of my children, my mom talked about our ancestry And the discussions would always start with the black African who was fondly referred to as Papa Rindy. And my mom spoke of her enslaved ancestors with a pride and with a reverence. She would talk about the fact that Papa Rindy could read, um, that he taught himself to read, um, that he taught himself to read using a book um, called the Blueback Webster. It was Noah Webster's Speller, and that he would teach others to read. Um, that he would read to people from the Bible, um, and that he was this community-type person um, that everyone respected. So your mother, she was the the child of sharecroppers? My mother was born in um, Montgomery, Alabama. Yes, she was um, born to um, parents who sharecropped. But also with her family was her grandfather, who was also named Rinty. And um, my mom would talk about um, Rinty Taylor Thompson, who she referred to as Papa. But she um, would talk about the fact that he was also born a slave. And again, when she talked about her enslaved ancestors, it was always with a pride and with a respect and with a reverence. And, um, you know, it was clear to me that the children uh, of slaves were not ashamed of their ancestor servitude, particularly mm-hmm. in my family. That was certainly the case. Mm-hmm. 
So the story of Renty and Delia, um, the story that your mother heard from her parents, uh, again, oral history passed down uh, through the generations. Um, When um, she was close to passing, what did your mother tell you about um, your family story? Yeah. Well, my mother, again, all throughout my childhood, she shared these stories of who Papa Renty was. Um, And she had a desire to document the story herself though she never got around to doing that. But when she became, um, she was inflicted with a number of life-threatening diseases, but towards the end of her life, it became important to her that I document the story of who my ancestors were. Um, My mother had a cousin who had documented her family tree um, back to Africa on her maternal side, and it was always her desire to document her family tree back on her paternal side to Africa, starting with Papa Renti. And so she always talked about doing that. She never got around to doing it. But towards the end of her life, you know, the things that she would say was, write this down, write this down, always remember. She would say things like, always remember, we're tailors, not Thompsons. And so, um, and, and the Taylors were the na- were the name of the original slaveholding family. Yes, the Taylors were. Um, um, she was referring to, although she didn't know at that time, she only knew that we were Taylors. But when I started on the journey of doing the research, I found my family in on Benjamin Franklin Taylor's uh, in his will, um, and so I knew that that was the Taylor connection. Um, which is so important because uh, when you think about slavery and the, the the destruction of the family, families were broken apart, broken up, and, and and separated, and you didn't know where your children went. You didn't know who they were then owned by. So um, if you didn't have the oral history um, and the fortunate ability to trace back knowing what new surnames they took on, it's impossible to do the research. And so how did you embark on, uh, you know, tracing these roots? So you had the oral history and Mm -hmm. you wrote it down. Um, This was probably before Ancestry.com became uh, super popular. Mm -hmm. And so can you briefly just uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, where you started and who did you seek out for help? Well, it's, you know, it's an amazing story. Um, One of the things that, you know, it wasn't my intention. I I mean, I've never written a book before, um, and I certainly didn't know how to do the genealogy in 2010 and 2011, and the Internet then wasn't what it is today. Um, But after my mom's passing, I had a guilt because we would only talk about these things because... It was something she enjoyed talking about it, and we kind of used that discussion about paparinti as a distraction to make her happy, make her feel better, and to take her mind from, you know, the the concerns about her health. Uh, But I never really had an intention originally of writing anything or documenting this. But after she passed, I had such guilt about it that I had made this promise to her, and it was so very important. Um, I I knew that I had to write this down, and I had to create this small little family tree, the genealogy project that she wanted me to do, but I had no clue. And um, one afternoon, I was out walking for lunch, and I stopped by a local ice cream shop, and I'm talking with... uh, the owner, um, a person that we, you know, 
I didn't know him personally. We just exchanged the normal pleasantries uh, when I would buy my lunch uh, and make small conversation. But I shared with him that day that my mom had passed and that I had made this promise to her to do this genealogy project that I didn't understand how to do. And uh, this was an elderly gentleman, uh, and he said, I love to do that kind of research. Write down what you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. And so I, I gave him exactly, you know, the names that my mom had given me. I started with Papa Rinti. Um, I gave him everything I knew about his children, his wife, uh, not Papa Rinti's wife, but my my mom's grandfather, Rinti's wife, Ophelia. Um and I, I shared with him the fact about, uh, you know, Rinty was African-born. Um, and I left with my salad, and I didn't go right back. Um, and shortly, uh, maybe about six or so weeks later, I stop in, and he's like, where have you been? Mm-hmm. I found your grandfather on the Internet. And I'm like, yeah, right. And again, I'm, I'm the first thing I thought was, how could my enslaved dance, how can an image of my enslaved ancestors be on the Internet? And, you know, how could that be? Um, So at that point, we exchanged names (laughs) and contact information and email addresses. And he said, I'll send you what I found. And um, he did. That evening when I got home, I opened up a document that he had created, which was a very comprehensive document about the lineage um, but also about Louis Agassiz. Mm-hmm. So I was learning. Um, this was the Harvard professor, the, Louis Agassiz. Yes, Louis Agassiz, mm-hmm. his uh, scientific racism theories, uh, you know, uh, the, the theories uh, that black were, blacks were a separate species. Mm-hmm. So I read that and I was just like horrified. Um, and well, can I ask, how did he connect you with photographs that were commissioned by this Harvard professor, Louis Agassiz, in 1850? You said that he connected you. Was it, was it he believed your great, great, great grandfather um, that was photographed for Louis Agassiz? Yes. Um, so it, it, it's all documented in the census. The census will pretty much take you back to um, my great grandfather, which was Rinty Taylor Thompson, and his father was Rinty. Um, but the census uh, shows a direct lineage, mm-hmm. uh, and so he, based on the information, and I think the 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 linchpin was the fact that um, I mentioned that Rinty was African, and so. Um, he put it together um, that evening when I opened the pictures. I read the narrative first, and when I opened the pictures, I was just like spellbound because, you know, when I looked at that image, I knew immediately that this was the man that I had heard so much about for most of my life. So we have images of, of Renty and Delia on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. But since we're on the radio, uh, Tamara, you have a picture of Renty, who you believe through this uh, research, uh, through the census, probate documents, wills, uh, that this individual photographed in 1850 is your great, great, great grandfather. Describe the first time when you saw his face. Can you describe what you felt and describe to our listeners how he looks to you? Well, it was really a surreal moment because um, firstly, you know, we connected in terms of 
the eyes. I looked at him, and I looked in his eyes, and I felt like he was staring back at me, um, that he was speaking to me. Um, I saw um, a resemblance. I saw a family resemblance in his eyes, and I saw the kind of pride that my mom spoke about in terms of who he was, um, the kind of also stubbornness I've seen in my uncles and other members of my family. Um, there was so much about the image that spoke to me. And then, you know, because I had read the narrative of how the images came to be, I was like, you know, I was there was this moment of like um, conflict because I was so excited to see uh, an image of the man that I'd heard so much about. And then I thought about how my mother would feel. Mm. Um, this was a man that she revered, that she loved, that she respected. She had never seen him. She had only heard so much about him and us through stories. Um, and then how would she feel knowing how the images came to be mm. and how her, her beloved paparinti was exploited um, so I knew that she would be hurt. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I thought about that often. I think about the, even today and, and, and regularly, would she have been happy to see them or would she rather have not? Mm. Um, and well, I, I want to remind our listeners uh, who they're hearing yes. on the radio. Tamara Lanier is a Norwich resident. Uh, she believes she's a descendant of Renty and Delia, two enslaved people whose images were commissioned by Harvard professor Louis Agassiz in 1850. Uh, Tamara, one of the reasons we invited you here today is because you have sued Harvard. You filed a lawsuit in March of 2019 saying that these photos belong to your family. Uh, Harvard uh, does not believe that uh, these photos belong to you. Why do you want these photos back? Well, there is there are a number of reasons. Um, Initially, I wanted to sit down with Harvard and have a conversation because Harvard um, and, and many others were using the image as a backdrop to the, the, the scientific racist theory of Louis Agassiz. A pseudoscience. A pseudoscience. And, and what Agassiz was saying and the reason why he took the images is he wanted ocular proof that black people were physically different, not only different, but a different species and subhuman. And um, that Agassiz also was quoted to say that black people had the intellectual capabilities of a seven-month-old fetus in the mother's womb. So originally when I approached Harvard, I was like, tell the true story of who Rinty was. And Rinty, just by virtue of his literacy and what he was able to do, disputes Agassiz's science and turns it on his head because Agassiz is saying that they're subhuman, but these slaves miraculously, even when it was illegal, um, for under threat of um, the, they could be killed for learning to read, these people, his subjects, disputed his scientific narrative. So my, my original position with, for Harvard was tell the true story of who these people were. Don't leave it, you know, we can't, un- we can't leave it unaddressed, the fact that um, Agassiz's subjects negated his science. Um, 
And for whatever reason, I could not get Harvard to take an interest in Rinty's legacy and who he was. Uh, we should mention that these uh, old photographs known as daguerreotypes yes. were discovered by a Harvard employee in the 1970s. It made news because it was believed that these were some of the earliest photographs of enslaved people in the United States. Um, we reached out to Harvard University uh, in a statement. Uh, this is just part of the statement. Um, Harvard writes, it acknowledges the university has a complicated history with slavery in America. And and is committed to continuing to explore these past connections. Uh, most recently, uh, in November of last year, uh, the Harvard president uh, announced a new university-wide initiative on Harvard and the legacy of slavery. Harvard also says it's committed to greater public access to these old photographs of Renty and Delia and is open to exploring whether an institution with a collection that has a greater focus on African-American history and culture would be interested in a long-term loan of the daguerreotypes. They also dispute your claim that it has profited from these images. Uh, again, uh, just to clarify for our listeners, uh, you believe through all this research that Renty and Delia photographed in 1850 are your relatives, that these photographs belong to your family. But what do you think of the argument that these photographs, um, when we talk about own ownership, that they maybe descendants of the original photographer could claim that these are their photographs, or a descendants of the original slaveholding family could say that these are their photographs. Why do you mm -hmm. believe these photographs belong to you? Okay. Well, I think we have to, again, thinking in terms of the, when these photographs were taken in the 1850s, um, look at the subjects, Renty, Delia, and the other slaves that were photographed. Um, they didn't volunteer to take these pictures. And Delia's picture, there's a book written, Delia's Tear, because if you look at the daguerreotypes, you see a tear welling in her eyes that she's crying during this experience or this ordeal. And so I liken the taking of these images kind of like the fruits of force, meaning that they, they their, their images were stolen from them because they did this under duress, almost as if someone's put a gun to their head and say, you pose and take these images or there will be consequences because of the threat of slavery. So they weren't willing subjects. These t photographs weren't taken with their permission. They weren't consenting to any use of their images. So these are the fruits of violence. And um, it would be saying that Harvard or the photographer should have a right to these images would be saying like a perpetrator of a robbery has a right to those proceeds. And not only do they have that right, but then they have the right to go on and taunt the, vi taunt the victim through perpetuity. And so there's something unjust about that. There's something morally wrong about that. And I believe that we have a great legal argument as well. And so it's, it's um, again, when we talk about the morality, um, bending towards justice here, slavery and, 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 and what they were forced to do should have some impact on the moral question as to whether or not Harvard should own them. Beyond that, Harvard's actions, 
they say that they haven't profited. Harvard, um, and that the images are in the um, public domain or they want to have them, that's only because they're motivated now because of the lawsuit. The fact that they're not profiting, again, is because they're motivated because of the lawsuit. People have talked about paying expensive one-time usage fees um, and uh, signing copyright contracts. Harvard doesn't have a good title on the images. The copyright contracts that they've had people sign aren't legitimate. So there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of legal things that um, certainly I would prefer the attorneys talk about, but I know that there is, Harvard um, has never come to the table in good faith to have a discussion about the images. Again, my uh, in-studio guest is Tamara Lanier, a Norwich, Connecticut resident who believes she's a descendant of Renty and Delia, enslaved people whose images were commissioned by Harvard professor Louis Agassiz in 1850. Again, if you go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, you can see these images for yourself. Lanier is currently suing Harvard for possession of those images. She wants those photos in her family. Coming up, we hear from a descendant of this Harvard professor who commissioned the photograph of Renty and Delia. Do you think Harvard should relinquish the photos to Lanier's family? You can join our conversation. Uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today is Tamara Lanier, a Norwich, Connecticut resident who has sued Harvard University. Harvard University's Peabody Museum has what is believed to be the earliest images of enslaved Africans in the United States that were taken in 1850 for Harvard professor Louis Agassiz. He commissioned a photographer to capture the images of enslaved people in South Carolina. Now, Agassiz used these images to justify his racial theory that blacks were a different species to whites, making them inferior, a scientifically disproven white supremacist idea that theorists at the time used to justify slavery. Through time-consuming research, Tamara believes she's related to two of the people photographed for Harvard professor Louis Agassiz. Their names were Renty and Delia. You can see their images on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, Tamara's journey to connect herself to them has taken her to South Carolina, where she met the family, uh, descendants of the original slaveholder of Renty and Delia. She's also connected with the family of Harvard professor Louis Agassiz. One of them joins us now uh, via Zoom. Her name is Marion Moore. She is the great, great, great granddaughter of Louis Agassiz. Uh, Marion, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So um, we don't have a lot of time, but briefly, tell us uh, what, growing up, what did you know about your ancestor? Again, Harvard professor Louis Agassiz. Okay, first I would love to just acknowledge that when you speak of Tammy, you say she believes she is the descendant, and you speak of me, you say I am the descendant. So I'd like to just say that Tammy Lanier is the descendant of Papa Renti. And um, so I found out about, uh, we grew up knowing that our ancestor had discovered that glaciers moved, and that was a point of pride in the family. And we didn't know until probably the 80s, I sort of heard some rumors, maybe from a sibling, that he also had what I filed away as 
problematic views about race, but I never did the research. And it was Tammy um, whose lawsuit I read about in the New York Times mm -hmm. and saw my ancestor's name connected to that. And it was um, really disturbing, but I made a decision in that moment that I was not going to hide my head under the covers and I was going to walk toward, open that door that could um, bring Tammy and me together and my family together to change the story mm -hmm. so that we're not, you know, <laughs> trying to other each other, but um, come to a the sense of belonging. Mm. So uh, tell me how you decided to reach out to uh, Tamara Lanier, uh, given again uh, your great-great-great-grandfather uh, Louis Agassiz's uh, you know, racist beliefs. And, and again, tell me a little bit more about why you wanted to take that step to reach out to her. Well, you know, I um, I this was, uh, I'm, a, I'm a racial justice activist in my life and in my work. And so, and we were raised as, um, you know, my parents were very engaged in civil rights. And here, this was on a personal level. And I know that it's easy to sort of ignore the things that you don't want to hear about the, you know, the ancestors whom you sort of were proud of. And I also knew that I could possibly be a part of a, a story that could be a part of a healing of this separation that, you know, that my ancestors' beliefs helped to propagate this notion that we are separate. And so it, I mean, and it felt, as Tammy can attest to me, it was as though there was, this was something, Lucy, that wanted to happen, because it was just almost... I, what I did is I wrote a Facebook message to Tammy and didn't hear from her for a while. But then I talked to my nephew and my son, both of whom center racial justice in their work. And my nephew suggested that we write an open letter, letter to Harvard. And I think my family members were really um, felt, felt, um, like super grateful to be able to take a stand that would, um, you know, try to undo part of what um, Louis Agassiz um, tried to, you know, did. <laughs> so you um, you mentioned this open letter. So it's not just you and a couple members of your family. There are many members of your family that have signed on to this open letter to Harvard University saying that your family supports Tammy's claim to these photographs of Renty and Delia. I just wanted to read part of that letter. Uh, quote, for Harvard to give the daguerreotypes to Ms. Lanier and her family would begin to make amends for its use of the photos as exhibits for the white supremacist theory Agassiz espoused. It is time for Harvard to recognize Renty and Delia as people. How did Harvard University respond to that letter? You know, we never got any response, um, so I, they didn't respond. Um, but we made our point, and we got press coverage. And one of the things that I uh, noticed, and, you know, uh, I posted um, that letter on my own Facebook page and my own statement that I got to make at the press conference last June. And I was so interested how many of my, you know, my white Facebook friends were so um, 
so, so not just supportive, but they were like, I wish I, you know, could take a stand like that. They saw that as an opportunity, this personal family story to be able to step into, you know, a new way of being and that that Harvard is avoiding, you know, Harvard is wanting to control the narrative and stay in this old story of, you know, supporting Louis Agassi. And they say they're working toward, you know, trying to use the photographs. But do you notice that that all is on their terms? And we think that it should be on Tammy's terms and on the descendants' terms. You're hearing Marion Moore joining us via Zoom, the great-great-great-granddaughter of Louis Agassiz, this Harvard professor who commissioned images of Renty and Delia. Moore and 42 members of her family wrote an open letter to Harvard in support of Norwich, Connecticut resident Tamara Lanier's, uh, again, claims to these photos. Uh, Tammy, I wanted to go back uh, to you. Is it all right if I call you yes, Tammy? Yes, please. Um, I wanted to go back to you uh, to respond uh, to uh, what it was like to get a Facebook message from this woman you didn't know um, that that wants to reconcile, acknowledge uh, her uh, distant relatives' uh, racist theory as well as wanting to apologize to you. Um, I'm just wondering if you could walk through what it was like to read that message. Well, I want to first thank Miriam. I mean, she's such a phenomenal person, um, and I'm so blessed to have connected with her and to have met her. Um, but it you know, originally I looked for Agassiz's descendants. Um, I was kind of apprehensive because I was afraid that his his toxic um, racism might have poisoned his children in that they might have thought like he did. So I was afraid if I found them what that experience would be like. So I think I found their grandmother and stopped at that point. Um, but when I got the Facebook message, it was after um, a news story, um, I think it was the New York Times, and then, and unfortunately, every time there's a news story, I, I get an overwhelmingly response of positive messages, encouraging messages, and there is that percentage of the hate messages. And so I, I, my, my social media pages were overwhelmed. And so I had to go through so many and delete so many. And then is this a good message or a bad message? And I would do it in moderation. I would do a review some messages and then I would put it aside and then I would come back later. And when I got to Miriam's message, I wasn't sure <laughs> if I should open it. Um, I wasn't sure that it was an actual message from a family member. Um, and so when I decided to read it, there was something that rang true about her message, something that connected with me, and I said, I'm going to reach out. And when I did, um, surprisingly, I found that, you know, when she talks about a social justice activist, um, I, I describe them as some of the most woke people that I've ever met. Uh, they've lived the life of, of building people up and giving back and uh, just amazing people. Um, and uh, from that moment, from that first phone call till today, we've been like sisters. So, you know, I, I, I see them as a part of my family. Uh, Marion Moore says that uh, Harvard University did not respond to her family's letter to them. Uh, what is your reaction to that? Well, I'm not surprised they, they don't respond to me either. Um, but again, it you know, what Miriam speaks about is so important because 
um, she she has lended um, you know a perspective from Louis Agassi, so to speak, because Harvard has in the past been very dis- defensive of Louis Agassi's. They've denied people use of the images because they questioned what they would say about Louis Agassi's. So from Harvard to here, from so many members of his family. Um, compelling them or asking them to do the right thing and then to ignore it kind, kind of speaks to uh, the kind of character of what we're dealing with um, in terms of um, resisting to come to the table and have an honest discussion about what we're, what we're really um, striving to do. Uh, in your research uh, connecting uh, you to Renty and Delia, um, it would be fair to say there are probably many other descendants of Renty and Delia. Um, have you found them? And again, why do you believe you should get these photographs and not them? Okay. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, it, 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 I, don't, I don't want to say it troubles me, but I know just as my mother heard these stories, so did other people. And I think, you know, this is a purpose-driven story because you have an African slave who from the 1800s told his children about who he was and to never forget. And each one of those generations told their children, as my mother told me. What's unique about my experience is I, I, I documented it. I recorded my mom talking. And then I pursued the story. And when I say pursued the story, I'm talking about traveling all over the country, all over the world, Switzerland and other places to document the story. So and, and I understand that because of my efforts, that doesn't give me any more of a kinship to Papa Renti. But I believe <clears throat> in a sense that, I, I, that this was, when I say purpose driven, that I was chosen to do this. Um, the things that my mother remembered uh, were the things that helped me bridge uh, uh, the, 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 the challenges of tracing genealogy for Afro-Americans. Um, but for that, the story would not be revealed. Um, my genealogy has been certified by a, a very prominent genealogist um, who says that I meet and far exceed the legal standard for kinship. Um, and that's only through the efforts of my mom, her grandfather, and, and, and their children of Paparinti. Um, the fact that uh, I was the one to piece this puzzle together, in my mind, um, gives me the right to say, to speak on behalf of Paparinti. Uh, before we, we head to break, I wanted to go back to Marion Moore again, uh, the great, great, great granddaughter of Louis Agassiz, this Harvard professor who commissioned these images of Renty and Delia back in 1850. Uh, this week, uh, the Harvard Crimson reported, Marion, that the Cambridge City Council voted to begin the process of renaming the city's Agassiz neighborhood, named after your great, great, great grandfather, Louis Agassiz, uh, because of uh, the fact that he, again, um, was a proponent of this uh, racist theory. What is your reaction uh, to that, that news? That's, it's really a great question because, you know, the, the little girl in me that was proud of my great-great-great-grandfather was like, oh, you know. <laughs> um, but the, the woman that is talking to you today is very supportive of that because it feels like part of the movement that Tammy has really um, 
you know, accelerated with her devotion to the legacy of her ancestor, you know, to reckon with what what those what the other part of his work was. So however we can get more consciousness about that, um, the better as far as I'm concerned. Well, I want to thank uh, you, Marion Moore, for joining us today here on Where We Live. We appreciate it. Thank you. Again, in studio with me is Tamara Lanier, a Norwich, Connecticut resident who is suing Harvard University over images of two enslaved individuals uh, taken in 1850, Renty and Delia. Uh, Tamara Lanier says uh, that her research proves that uh, these two individuals are her descendants. Uh, Coming up after the break, we want to expand this conversation and we're going to talk to a Georgetown uh, professor of history about how universities including Georgetown, are now acknowledging their legacies to slavery. And we're going to get her thoughts on what she thinks Harvard University should do about, again, these daguerreotypes that they possess of Renty and Delia. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We've been talking with Norwich, Connecticut resident Tamara Lanier, who's suing Harvard University for its possession of old photographs known as daguerreotypes taken in 1850 of two enslaved people who Lanier says are her relatives. They were commissioned by a Harvard professor, Louis Agassiz, who advanced a white supremacist theory that claimed blacks were inferior to whites. Now, how should universities acknowledge their legacies to slavery? Joining us now, via phone is Marsha Chatlin, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Uh, Marsha, welcome to our show. Thank you. So I wanted to, uh, to talk w- first about um, maybe reminding our listeners about how American universities profited from slavery. What are some examples? Well, when we think about universities and slavery, sometimes our default position is thinking about the enslaved people who helped build the physical buildings. But I think it's also important for us to understand that a lot of the wealth that went into building and sustaining colleges and universities across the country was wealth that was made from the slave trade and the industries that depended on slave labor. In addition to that, I think this case at Harvard with uh, Louis Agassiz's um, photographs also highlight the ways that universities were also places in which the ideology of white supremacy was not only validated, but it was taught to people who went out and led in various industries. Mm. Uh, I'm speaking with you again. You're a historian at Georgetown. Georgetown itself has been acknowledging um, its uh, its connections uh, to slavery. There was this great New York Times story about um, how Georgetown sold um, 272 slaves as a fundraiser to avoid bankruptcy. I believe you now sit on a committee uh, to, uh, again, think about ways to talk about Georgetown's history and acknowledging this past. Can you tell me about those efforts? Yeah, so I was a member of the working group on memory, slavery, memory, and reconciliation, and we were charged with really thinking about how the history of Georgetown slaveholding can animate not only what people know about Georgetown, but how we proceed in the future. And through various initiatives, we've been able to raise consciousness on our campus And I think what's been more gratifying from my perspective is that these efforts 
in many ways helped the university also confront the descendants of not only the 1838 sale, but the long history of slaveholding that was at the center of Georgetown University. Uh, when uh, we, we connect this again to this conversation we're having here with Connecticut resident Tamara Lanier, who believes that um, the family of the descendants of Renty and Delia should uh, be able to possess these photos and not Harvard University. Harvard University believes uh, they are, or it is, an ethical steward of these uh, photographs. And so how should, in your opinion, Harvard handle this situation? Again, they're being sued by Tamara Lanier for these daguerreotypes. Yeah, and I really support her lawsuit because I think that at the end of the day, we don't make progress if we continue to have this viewpoint that everything a university does is positive, good, or benevolent for the greater good. It's not true. Universities, like other institutions, can do incredible things, but they also have to be held accountable because it isn't just that um, one individual on their faculty was a bad actor and had all of these negative ramifications intellectually. It's the fact that the possession of those photographs and the inclusion of this person on the faculty is also what helped build Harvard's prestige and reputation. And I think that they have to account for it. And so I'm really excited to see these innovative approaches to pushing back against universities because it opens up a lot of deep, complex questions that would otherwise be ignored. Mm. So you're saying uh, people like Tamara Lanier suing Harvard University is um, a, a way to bring awareness and to force a university to think about its history? 100%. I think that if we believe that the legacy of slavery is deeply buried and is only a matter of um, plantations from a bygone era, or it's simply about photographs of a different period, then we lose sight of just how nefarious and pernicious slavery was, that, there are, that the legacy continues in people and individuals who are willing to push back against the um, power that slavery um, allowed for these institutions to have. And so I don't know if there is room within the law today to allow for these photographs to be returned to the descendants. But having this conversation and the conversations that will be generated because of it, I think already show the power mm-hmm. and the importance of these actions. Can I follow up on, on what you just said about you're not sure if the law um, um, really sides with people like Tamara Lanier um, when they're challenging uh, universities' uh, possession or ownership of these um, these items. Um, I believe the current Harvard professor, Bacow, if I'm saying his uh, last name correctly, also has quoted as saying the law is on Harvard side. So can you tell us more about that? Well, I mean, I think that the the law is often on the side of the privilege, but um, there is precedent um, because of policy. When we think about um, uh, Native American artifacts and universities and other cultural institutions having to repatriate, whether it is the um, the bones of people who have passed or objects. So I think that there is place within the law to imagine repatriation of items. I think that it is unfortunate that the law has to be the default position and Harvard not simply being reflective and saying, you know what, perhaps there's a different way that we can engage with the family of descendants and there's a different way that we can 
see this as not just about intellectual property, but about doing justice. And so um, there are frames in which universities have to relinquish property because of how that property came into their possession. Unfortunately, at the time that these photographs were taken, no laws were being violated. And I think that's probably the wall that um, the family, um, that Lanier particularly, is is up against, but it doesn't mean that the claim is not valuable. Thank you for clarifying that. You're hearing uh, Marsha Chatlin, historian and professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I wanted to go back to uh, Tamara Lanier, again, a Norwich, Connecticut resident, in studio with me. Uh, first, what's your reaction when you hear uh, historian Marsha Chatlin uh, agreeing with that, with your stance that uh, these photographs belong, should belong to you? Well, I want to thank Marsha for her insight, and I want to add to the discussion and, and some of the research. Um, I came across the, a recent legislative act in 2016. It's the HERE Act, the Holocaust um, Expropriation Art Recovery Act. Um, that was passed unanimously by Congress. But what it says is, um, it says a lot of things, but specifically for victims of the Holocaust, that um, that uh, that uh, they would um, for these purposes, so that they could recover um, property um, appropriated because of the Holocaust. That um, they would toll statutes of limitations. They would charge museums with the responsibility of canvassing their inventory, inventory, um, looking for any property that might belong to victims of the Holocaust, and that they return it. Um, that. Um, that the victims of the Holocaust could seek redress in United States courts, irrespective of where they live. These are all great things. And so when I read that, I'm thinking, but what about the victims of slavery? Um, can we have these kinds of protections? This is what I'm asking. These are cultural relics. These are family photos. Where is my protection? And so um, one of the part of the argument argues equal protection. Um, you know, if I were a victim of the Holocaust, I would have legislation protecting me. And so my hope is that we broaden the discussion to apply the same standards as we do to the Native American Great Protection Act, uh, the HERE Act, to descendants of slaves. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, Tamara, again, uh, Harvard University uh, is being sued by you. Uh, they still possess these daguerreotypes of Renty and Delia, who you say are your uh, relatives. If uh, a judge, a jury would rule in your favor, what would you do with these images? Well, it's just fortunate to have the opportunity uh, to make that decision. Um, and I have thought about it. I've thought about um, the Smithsonian. I've thought about the Afro-American Museum in DC. There's also one coming up in, in some of Rinty's children's uh, hometown of, of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and I've also been in communications with people from Africa um, in terms of the possibility of Rinty returning home. Uh, so I haven't decided, but, uh, you know, it would just, I just would uh, enjoy the privilege of making that decision. Mm. Uh, I mentioned that your mother uh, passed away um, several years ago, and that's what started you on this journey uh, to connect yourself to Renty and Delia. What do you think she would say to you if she knew how far you've come? Um, I think about that often. Um, she would be 
very proud. Um, I think she, um, it's because of her that I'm driven to see this through. Um, it's been a long journey, a lot of setbacks, a lot of disappointments, but she and this image in front of me are my motivation. And so I may have to set it aside uh, for a moment or two to recoup, um, but I, I'm driven to see this through to the end. And I believe that if our 13th, if the Civil Rights Act of 1868 and our 13th and 14th Amendment are going to be true to the, doc, the paper that it's written on, that Renty and Delia will prevail. Well, I want to thank Tamara Lanier again for coming into our studio here um, um, where we live, a Norwich, Connecticut resident uh, who uh, says she's the descendant of Renty and Delia, enslaved people whose images were commissioned by Harvard professor Louis Agassiz in 1850. You can see Renty and Delia on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Tamara, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Also, Marsha Chatlin was with us, a historian from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., uh, she's got a new book out, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Marsha, we thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken. Uh, thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Maxine Villafong. And Ryan Karen King. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.